0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Before Economics, the history of political economy. Of all the issues that fall under social policy, welfare reform seems to be the most controversial. The notion of a culture of poverty, or a cycle of poverty, suggests that the condition of the poor owes, at least in part, to well-meaning attempts to alleviate poverty. In its crudest version, the idea suggests that the poor do not work because their will to work has been replaced by the habit of passively receiving welfare payments the needed remedy is to restore this will, often expressed in slogans such as personal responsibility and welfare to work. The striking feature of such arguments is that they treat poverty as a moral issue, not an economic one. Morality is involved at the level of both the individual and society, for it is the individual whose inner life must be reconfigured so that they desire to work but this reformation can only be achieved by society altering the system of incentives and disincentives surrounding work and welfare. In this respect, these arguments are very old and can be traced back to today's thinker, Thomas Robert Malthus, whose 1798 text, An Essay on the Principle of Population, is the focus. Malthus was a second son and could not therefore expect to inherit wealth and was obliged to make his own way in the world. While still a teenager. Malthus had expressed a desire to enter the church for his profession. Because of a cleft lip and palate, he was advised against this path, since it was presumed that it would interfere with his preaching duties. It is a testament to his character that he nevertheless became a successful orator. Malthus's preparation for a career in the church at Cambridge University goes a long way to explaining why he approached the issue of poverty in moral terms. Professor Sergio Kromasky.
1: He was sent to Cambridge uh, where there were two main uh, traditions of thought alive. One is uh, basically something similar to the Scottish uh, uh, philosophy of mind and epistemology. It was uh, the same tradition, uh, a mild interpretation of Newton as a semi-inductivist and the juxtaposition of uh, Newton against Newton versus Descartes. Descartes as a, the Bat Noir, a priorism, uh, an approach uh, that ignores fact, uh, ignores phenomena and tries to bend phenomena to preconceived uh, intellectual schemes, while Newton taught us uh, the right uh, moderate uh, third way between a priorism and scepticism. This is something that makes uh, Martus' mind very close to Adam Smith's mind. So in terms of methodology, he was uh, too a kind of let's say not skeptic, not semi sc- skeptic, but some but an anti-dogmatic at least. The other tradition that was alive in Cambridge at this time was natural theology. There is an history accounting for that, uh, but uh, it resulted as a reaction to the dominance of Calvinism in Cromwell's time as, as a reaction Cambridge University developed a tradition of rational theology. Natural means something not depending on revelation, depending on pure reason, so something universal on which every human being, coming from different religious traditions, could agree on. And uh, natural uh, theology proved that God exists, that he created the world, that uh, the creation is good and in the world Uh, the good prevails over evil. If these were
0: the traditions to which Malthus was exposed at Cambridge, how did he put them to work when addressing the question of poverty? The answer is that he combined them, and in the process created a tremendously powerful argument against giving financial assistance to the poor. Such assistance had become established under the institution known as the Poor Laws, which provided relief for families at the parish level and was adjusted depending on the size of the family. In other words, We might say that welfare payments were Malthus's target. He made his attack in two steps. The first was to assert the existence of incompatible tendencies inherent to population and the food supply. While population would increase at a geometric rate, such as 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, the food supply would only increase arithmetically, such as 2, 4, 6, 8, 10. If it took 25 years for the population to double, then the implication was that in most cases, two generations of uninhibited population growth would be sufficient to create the deepest famine and misery. Here we might detect the influence of Newton and the search for general principles. Of course, Malthus's argument was not that this actually happened as a matter of course, but that the population was kept down by various means to the actual level of the food supply. The most important of these checks was the so-called preventive check, by which Malthus meant such customs as delayed marriage and sexual abstinence. Malthus gave the example of a gentleman who, if he married, would fall below the level of a gentleman, obliging him to keep company with the uneducated. Malthus argued that such a prospect would ensure that the gentleman remained a bachelor. Malthus also gave the contrasting example of the labourer, who did not fear falling to a lower class, but did fear the prospect of having to work harder and longer to support a family. In both cases, it was a prudential concern for future consequences that delayed marriage and procreation. In this way, individual choices accumulated and had demographic importance. Individual choices also had moral and political importance, since the other way that population was kept to the level of the food supply was by the positive check. This was Malthus's euphemism for death through famine and malnutrition. It tended to operate only amongst those whom Malthus called the lowest orders of society, and in such a nation as England, it ought not to exist. This brings us to the second stage in Malthus's attack on the Poor Laws, on welfare. His argument was that by providing sustenance for a family in time of need, the state was removing the obligation for individuals to guarantee the welfare of their family. In other words, if a worker's children would be fed regardless of their number and regardless of the cost of food, then there was no need to delay marriage. Here we can see why it is tempting to think of Malthus as an early exponent of personal responsibility. However, such a perspective is inaccurate because what Malthus found most alarming in this situation was not a cycle of poverty, but that it frustrated the laws of God. This takes us back to the natural theology that Malthus imbibed at Cambridge. We are told that God created poverty to teach us how to govern our passions, above all the sexual passion that existed between the sexes. In learning to govern our passions and to take heed of the future consequences of present actions, Malthus claimed that we are really forming our minds and souls into a state fit for the next life. Malthus considered the acquisition of prudence as one part of the process by which chaotic matter is formed into spirit, a process that begins with the search for refuge from cold and hunger and ends with the heights of poetry, philosophy and love for humanity. As can be seen, Malthus's arguments are tightly bound to Anglican theology, and they therefore have little to say to poverty in our secular world. What does this mean for the empirical credentials of Malthus's principle of population? While the mere presence of theology need not be incompatible with empiricism, as Charles Darwin would later demonstrate, in the case of Malthus, it seems that he was not terribly open to observing the world as it was developing around him. Dr. Keith Tribe
2: What Malthus did was to take this hypothesis and then build upon it further hypotheses about positive and preventive checks and so forth to arrive at, in effect, a critique of the desirability of ameliorating poverty by distributing cash effectively by one couldn't help people who were poor by giving them money with what Malthus's view was so in general the theoretical structure of his argument was faulty it was simply a hypothesis which is then taken as a given to which was added another hypothesis which then was taken as a given to which then another hypothesis was added and this was meant to be a kind of a general proof ...of the fact that you could not improve poverty and improve people's welfare simply by redistributing income. So that's one side to it. The other thing was that Malthus must have been aware of the weaknesses of his argument... ...because shortly afterwards, in the early 1800s, he produced a second edition which had a lot more empirical material. He restructured the book and tried to bring in a lot more empirical evidence of the rectitude of his general argument... And as the editions went on, there were several more editions, the book got more and more bloated with examples desperately trying to demonstrate. And he went around collecting material and so forth and put a lot of effort into all of this, trying to demonstrate the truth of his general argument. But the general argument was wrong. And it was also wrong empirically, because he lived through four censuses. The 1801 census, the first national sentence in Britain. He died in 1834. There were censuses in 1811, in 1821, and 1831. In the 1821 census, it was demonstrated that half of the population of England and Wales was under the age of 20. The population was expanding rapidly. Malthus lived through a period in which the population was undergoing a secular, rapid increase. Without there being any particular increase in poverty or, or suffering, obviously, Poor people were extremely poor and there was a lot of suffering. But this wasn't, in a, sp- a sense, any particularly different to what would have happened in the 18th century. What's interesting about Malthus's reaction to this is that not that he didn't notice it, but he actually said this wasn't a trend, it was a variation, it was a fluctuation, that he expected the population to settle back down again. He didn't expect this to continue. So he lived through a period in which the English, especially the English population, started to develop extremely rapidly. He set up an argument about population and the future of commercial society, which could easily be disproved on the basis of evidence which was all around him. Whatever the
0: failings of Malthus's theory, his influence can hardly be denied. Above all, the idea that wages and the pool of available workers were inversely related Became a mainstay of political economy. The effect was to drag the science away from the presumption cultivated by reason of state theories that population was good because it made the state stronger. Instead, it was necessary to examine the welfare implications of an increasing population. In this regard, it is important to underline not the conservative, but the optimistic and hopeful side of Malthus's thought. The aim of his science was to maximise the happiness of the population over the long term, which would mean high wages, brought about, at least in part, by lower birth rates. If we look to the economies of Western Europe today, then it is clear that their prosperity has coincided with falling birth rates. Of course, the efficient cause would seem to be advances in contraception as much as moral prudence. This episode of Before Economics was brought to you by the European Society for the History of Economic Thought. Written and spoken by me, Dr. Ryan Walter, at the University of Queensland. Special thanks to Sergio Kramarski and Keith Tribe. The audio engineer was Nii Adepoyubi.